suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 182 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. We're back from our Christmas holidays and it's great to be back. With me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day Paul, g'day listeners. And for those of you that are keeping track, I'm drinking a Little Creatures Pale Ale, which was sent to us very nicely by Dave B. And he also sent us, he was very generous with his um, beer sponsorship, he sent us a four-pack of Feral Brewing and a six-pack of Breakwater Pale Ale. Mm. So, in the coming weeks, we'll be drinking a mixture of beers. We're all sorted for a few weeks. We are, we are sorted for a few weeks. So, yeah, don't panic about it. Any out there, any potential beer sponsors? But, do, you, uh, do you think a few six packs will last that long? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what we actually uncover. Mm, might be tempted to slip in an ep- extra episode. Uh, 12th Man, welcome aboard the good ship uh, Iron Fist Velvet G'day Glove. Fist, g'day Glove, g'day listeners. How are you all? Mm, they're all good. And it's strange for us because. We're recording on a Saturday morning, so I've been uh, up and down the coast and away in bits and pieces and looking at our schedules, the only time we could get together was on a Saturday morning. So here we are, uh, daylight, recording, and it feels a bit odd. So It does feel a bit odd. I yeah. mean, you offered me a cup of coffee when I first arrived yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> we've started with coffee and now <laughs> on to the beer. <laughs> anyway, dear listener, this is a, uh, a podcast about news and politics and things going on in the world and... Uh, it's a weekly podcast and we discuss the goings on and we're going to do that again this time. And we've got a situation where there's a shutdown of the US federal government, in a sense, um, over funding for the wall that Trump wants to build uh, on the border with Mexico. And basically, all governments need appropriation bills where they spend money for the next 12 months normally. And uh, the, there are bills put forward to spend money for all the normal things that, uh, you know, running museums and um, uh, national parks, the FBI, all sorts of federal institutions that require ongoing funds need a bill to say, here's it's, the money for it. It's what we refer to as supply, isn't it? Correct. Yep. And... Uh, in America, what's happened is that uh, Trump is threatening to veto any such bill if it does not have a significant component of money for the wall that he wants to build. So I can't remember the exact figures, but several billions of dollars that he's saying. Five I'm not billion dollars. Is mm, he's saying I'm going to veto these bills uh, if you present them because I want my funding for the wall. So a couple of things, dear listener, and um, the whole presidential veto power is is very interesting. So the way it works is the uh, you've got Congress over there, uh, you've got your your House of Representatives and your and your Senate, same as us, your lower house and your upper house, and here in Australia, 
if you get, you know, a piece of legislation through both houses, that's it. Like, it's law. It goes on to have royal assent, which could yes. be knocked back, but... Well, it has to go to the Governor-General, who yeah. has to, by formality, just tick it. Exactly. Tick and if, it. if yeah. he doesn't, then he's out on his ass. Yeah. You know. so, <laughs> so for all intents and purposes, um, get it through the House of Reps and the Senate and you're done. In America, get it through the two houses, but there's like a 14-day waiting period where the President can veto the decision. And if he does, then it's not law. Mm. And the, to break that stalemate, if the president keeps vetoing something, you could break it if you can get a two-thirds majority in each of the houses. And that's hard to do. Yes. Really hard because to do. Because the Republicans still dominate the Senate. Correct. They're still in charge. They have the majority in the Senate. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, getting two thirds in any house uh, is a tricky thing to do in our in our in a lot of societies. So, so this is an issue that arises in countries that have presidential systems, where you've got what's called the executive power um, in the in the hands of a president, which is very separate to the Australian sort of parliamentary system, where the executive meaning cabinet, is part of the legislative council. And you're looking at me because I've expressed support for the American system before. Well, I can't remember that. (laughs) But if you did, are you having second thoughts about it, No, I'm not. You don't see this as a problem? No, I'm not because this is only a problem when you've got a lunatic in charge and they've got a lunatic in charge over there. Now, just wait, Paul. I'll come to you shortly. (laughs) If you've got a lunatic in charge who actually says, I'll veto everything unless I get my $5 billion for a wall, you're going to have this sort of problems. And it's going to continually happen until such time as two thirds of the public, uh, two thirds of the house, turn around and say, "No, this guy's got to go," and then they touch, then they start talking impeachment. They get rid of him. That could happen if he pushes this too hard. Enough Republicans will probably think to themselves, "This guy's bonkers." We will move on. We will get rid of him, and then we'll get someone new, and they'll get Mike Pence. He'll be more malleable. Um, although he's a Christian crazy, so you know. But then it'll be very close to the next next federal election anyway, so it'll be over. I don't have a problem with having a separate executive from the legislature. I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Look at recent mm. history, Scott. We've mm. had we've had people like Reagan, we've had Nixon, we've had George W. Bush. Even Obama wasn't that crash hot as a president, I have to say, even though mm. I think as a human being he was a cut above most of them. Um I don't like the idea of this elected president because you get these show business types and these... But, you know, you've got this... You're in a situation that you've got, you know... Well, the Republican issue in Australia is going to move forward until the plebiscite which Labor's going to put up and then after that it's going to be a success. Then after that the wheels are going to come off because then you're going to talk about what sort of presidency you want. The public still is a majority behind an elected president. Yeah. Those that want to want to impose it, want to put a republic on us, don't want an elected president. So it's going to the wheels are going to fall off after that want, next row. What are you guys in favour of? What kind of republican? I personally don't want an elected president. I don't want an elected president. No, I think it's better to have it 
somebody <laughs> who yeah. who has a, a job much like the current Governor General, you know, who's just nominated by the, mm. you know, the, it's, it's the, just, the yeah, elected Just cut out the British monarchy and continue on as we are. I don't yeah. think you need governors and governor generals then. If you're just going to have that, you then you possibly might you don't, don't, probably you possibly don't. don't need anybody. Really, exactly. You? you know, just you, you should just have a parliament exactly. with, yes. a, with a parliament, with a prime that, minister that and that sort be of fine. stuff. And then you could do away with royal assent entirely. That would be Republican fine. Republican assent. Yeah, you know. that would be fine as well. That do would away be, with wouldn't it. be a problem. Yeah. However. But, but, but the problem is. Yeah, I do believe that you should keep the executive separate from the legislature. Why? Why? Because you've got this situation that legislature can then be dictated to by the executive. Whereas if you've got them separate, the legislature can actually rebel against the executive's decision. Well, they can anyway. They can, but it's less likely. It's less likely, but I mean, it's. It's still possible. I mean, isn't that the job of the executive is to consider what laws are needed and to, you know, formulate them in a, in a, in a positive way? Here's one of the things about the executive being, you know, part of the presidency. The, the changeover, the transition when you have a new president. Yeah. So I've got some links to some articles here. It's very frightening. Which are really interesting. <laughs> so... Uh, as it gets close to the election, the the outgoing president, in this case, most recently it was Obama, has to then approach, you know, the three or four potential candidates with any real chance of success and say to them, right, you guys need to prepare for a possible transition. You're all um, like, you know, a potential winner here and you need to get a transition team ready and um, there's about 500 jobs that you need to find um, bodies, yeah. warm bodies and, and to, that, to that, occupy. And that is ridiculous that you've got and 500 so, jobs. So they bring in, so each, so each of the people who was in the running, uh, the leading candidates on both sides, had to start spending their own money in organising a transition, which may not happen because you may not win. Mm. So somebody like Trump, for example, who the polls were saying was not going to win, had to um, basically make arrangements, interview people. Like these aren't just Mickey Mouse jobs, mm. although some of them so, – well, let, let's, I'll just quote some stuff here um, from this article. Uh, because uh, when Trump was told you, you're going to need to form a transition team, he didn't want to do it because he had to spend his own money. <laughs> the, the government will give you an office and they'll they'll empty the trash for it, but otherwise you've got to staff it and run the running costs of it. And, of course, Trump doesn't want to spend money on a no, transition exactly. team yeah. on an election he didn't want to win anyway in the first place. So, um, so he was um, apoplectic when he found out that it was his own money that was going to have to be spent on this and a transition team was sort of formed against his wishes and he basically told them to shut it down. He didn't want a transition team because it was, in his words, language warning, you're stealing my fucking money was what he was saying to them. And they said to him, well, you've got to have a transition team because if you actually close the transition team down, it sends a signal that you think you're going to lose. So that was the thing that actually made him keep up with it. But so um, so anyway, I'll just read yeah, part of this. They need to, to feel – you If you have a transition team that it's only got to use your elected president to find his or her cabinet, 
it can be done from a, a lounge room. You know, if you find the cabinet members and you vet them and you bring them on board, that's no, that's no problem. 510 bodies that have to be replaced every time there's an election, that is ridiculous. You know, you've got too many people that you have to transition, whereas if you had a transition team that was only replacing a cabinet, that's 20 people at most. I'm just reading here, the transition team now moved into an office in downtown Washington, D.C., and went looking for people to occupy the top 500 jobs in the federal government. They needed to fill all the cabinet positions, of course, but also a whole bunch of others that no one in the Trump campaign even knew existed. It is not obvious how you find the next Secretary of State, much less the next Secretary of Transportation. Never mind who should sit on the Board of Trustees of the Barry Goldwater Scholarship and Excellence in Education Foundation. Like a bunch of obscure exactly. jobs. And that's, that's, that's the whole point. I mean, like you've got to have, if you have a transition team that's only got to find a cabinet, and then after that the cabinet ministers are then responsible for their secretaries and undersecretaries. Yeah. That's no problem. So, um, so anyway, this is, even if you're talking about a, a, a cabinet, Scott, it's the continuity of knowledge. If you're just wiping the slate clean all the time, Okay, so you're saying rather than 500 jobs, just 20. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's not that simple though, is it? But and even beyond... No, but those 20, you could... You, could, you know, I was probably being a little bit flippant by saying you could yeah. do that in the lounge room. You could do that in the lounge room where the president, the, the newly elected president and a three or four advisors could sit there and hash out a group of 40 people that they then send off and say, right, vet these 40 names, come back with the top 20... And then after that, you've got your 20 cabinet ministers. But a country the size of the United States, it has a huge public service. Absolutely, it does. It's massive. A lot of uh, important jobs that require expertise and and knowledge and understanding of how things run. But if you allow that sort of thing to be, if you delegate that to your new cabinet and allow them to work out who their undersecretaries is, I think that would work. The the calibre of the people that Trump hung around with were not, Really, super. They were idiots. They were, you know, car salesmen and real estate developers, yeah. basically. It's it's a slightly different matter, but one of the things that uh, evil things that Howard did as well was when he gained power, he removed a lot of the heads of department who were career politicians who previously expected to uh, have their positions under either Liberal or Labor governments and just implement the policy that they were asked to implement. Mm. And he got rid of a lot of those that was uh, not the norm at that time but mm. has possibly yeah. become the norm since. So and you, Absolutely. And he was politically not motivated. He wanted well, to get rid of people that he saw, yes. rightly or wrongly, yes. as supporters of a Labor government. Yes. Yep. Exactly. And, 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 you that know, is, that's been the damage to our public service because once upon a time the public service used to give fearless and frank advice to the government. Now they give sick advantage advice to keep their jobs. Which is a huge... um, So that loss of corporate knowledge. And can you imagine, you know, when a president like Trump comes in and and brings in 500 new people and the loss of corporate knowledge that just keeps happening with that system is Well, see, those 500 that would be appointed by Trump wouldn't Mm. be interested in talking to their predecessors. No, no. I should mention Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, been said that the Japanese, you know, that Japan as a country runs on the continuity of expertise 
embodied in its public service, right. regardless of who gets elected to be prime minister and cabinet. Mm. Uh, apparently, the public service has very solid continuity, and some people even say that they have more power than the elected government, which right. would not be a good thing in a democracy. But you can understand that at least you know they don't disrupt that. Uh, continuity of expertise mm. and, the, and the country runs and it runs mm. like a well-oiled machine, you know. Yeah, well, we all remember, yes, Minister and yes, Prime Minister and, you know, <laughs> Sir Humphrey was yeah. part of a public service yeah. that would continue yeah. no matter who was in power exactly. and, sure, that had its own frustrations for everybody involved but yeah. at but the least there worked. was some expertise that continued on. Yeah. Uh, as a result. So anyway, all of this hullabaloo, of course, is over funding for the wall and, you know. The border war between yes, America and, and, the, and Mexico. The, the consensus of educated opinion seems to be that if you wanting to stop people coming across, uh, which is a legitimate aim, there are much better ways of doing it than building concrete walls. Mm. And, and a lot of this territory is desert country that's extremely difficult for people to cross and uh, so what they're saying is more high-tech things are, are far more likely to work but you know people are very critical of Trump and his wall but I've got a link to an article here um, about the European Union has funded a wall not dissimilar to the one that Trump wants to build and there's a picture and links here dear listener look at the show notes but um, there's a 764-kilometre wall between Turkey and Syria, which has been funded by none other than the European Union. So that border between Turkey and Syria, the European Union has drawn a line in the sand, literally, and said, we're going to give you some money, whack up a decent-sized wall. Seven hundred kilometres would stop. be the entire border between Syria. No, the the and, entire uh, border is eight hundred and twenty-two kilometres. Oh, is yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. But oh. that's fifty-eight kilometres between them. You know, mm. so they can. Uh, can yeah, I mention yeah. one more aspect of these walls, and that is uh, environmental concerns. And the United States. I mean, there, I've read that a, there are quite a lot of um, there's quite a lot of wildlife that regularly traverses the border right. between the United States and Mexico. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it's probably going to disrupt ecosystems and uh, wildlife migrations and, and wreak havoc on the, on the local wildlife having a, a physical barrier there, mm -hmm. which is a concern considering the, the loss of um, wildlife globally over the last, mm. you know, 50, 100 years. Mm. Some of the uh, funding for this wall yeah. uh, in Turkey... Uh, three billion of it was under the guise of humanitarian aid uh, for the Syrian refugees, yeah. but in fact it was used to trap them yeah, in their yeah, own country. Exactly. So, what that, a surprise. You know, this is Angela Merkel realizing that she'd cocked up when she let a million of them in. You know, she should have funded the decent treatment of them in yes. Turkey and Lebanon, mm -hmm. rather than just opening the borders to Germany. Anyway, 
I, I've um, spent the last – it's been great the last week. I've had time to read. Mm. You guys had any time to read any books and such? No? I did take delivery of right. uh, Dark Emu. Okay. I haven't read very much. Yet. Right, okay. I finally finished that book you lent me. I'm going to bring it home with me. Sorry. Okay. Uh, the Mandibles. Yes. With, um, yes. Lionel Triver. It was very good. It is good. Yeah, it was really good. I highly recommend it. Anyway, <laughs> I had previously read Naomi Klein, The Shock Doctrine, but I'd read it on a Kindle and – I find that Kindle's great for just novels, but if you're reading something uh, non-fiction and you want to write and scribble all over it, then I need a hard book. So I reread it, the hard book cover. It's a honestly, dear listener, you guys haven't read it, have you? Shock Doctrine, so- no, Shock Doctrine, the Shock yeah. Doctrine by Naomi Klein. No, I can take it from you though, if you so, like. So um, really, really valuable expose of how the USA has been just screwing over the poor countries all over the world, in particular Latin America. It's a litany of crimes that they've committed on on that continent. When and you say the United States, the yes. United States government or, yes. or corporate the United yeah, both. States? Both, both. So the classic example being uh, Chile where uh, Allende was overthrown and... Um, Not just overthrown, murdered. yes. And, a and thousands of military Chilean di- alleged leftists were yeah. rounded up and systematically murdered. Yes, indeed. And, you know, it's not some wild conspiracy theory. It's, it's common knowledge that the US and Kissinger were heavily involved in supporting the military um, dictatorship uh, that came about. And, um, and then having, having overthrown the the leftish, you know, potentially communist government, they then uh, forced, well, the, the quid pro quo was that the, the barriers to entry for multinationals would be reduced and, and state-run, you know, enterprises would be sold off and the whole sort of neoliberal um, invasion would happen in a monetary sense of Chile and the raping and pillaging in a money sense as well. So anyway, honestly, America, you couldn't, you possibly could not name a Latin American country where they did not perform something along those lines where they supported, where they were worried about leftish governments for being, you know, open inverted commas, communist and as a result supported strongman military dictators who then of course, murder and uh, a large proportion of the population. Uh, they sell off government assets. They bring in cheap imports. Local communities have no way of making money anymore except through drug trade perhaps and you then get the whole rise of these drug lords and, and the sort of drug wars that are happening. So back to Trump, you know, part of the thing here is the people who are, who are leaving Honduras and walking all the way to the US border are having to do it because of the direct action of the US government over the past 20 and 30 years of just screwing their country over. So they're knocking on the door because of the actions of the US government. And not entirely, but yeah. Oh, Look, yeah, let, honestly, the, the trick. The, oh, I agree. The treatment that they receive at the, at 
you know, under, you know, conservative or, if you like, right-wing governments is mm. atrocious. Yep. But they don't get any better under the left-wing governments. But, Let's no. be real. Look at Venezuela. It's a fucking basket case. Yeah. And uh, that's a leftist government. Look at yeah. Cuba. Uh, the Cuban military has totally dominated all aspects of commerce in Cuba mm. and they, they just keep the money for themselves, you know, what, the people who have connections with the Cuban uh, government and military. One of the problems, though, that they get the book, screwed over both ways. One of the problems that the book illustrates, though, is that when you've got these leftist governments come in, uh, basically the US then imposes all of these trade sanctions on them. So they can't conduct a proper economy because of the bastard actions of the US government in imposing trade sanctions against them. So they're behind the eight ball. And what often happens as well is their public assets have been sold off for next to nothing, Uh, cheap imports have been allowed in, Their, uh, their debt levels skyrocket and at that point left-wing governments will come in and they get saddled with all of this debt created by military dictatorships and then you've got the IMF and the um, – uh, uh, who's the other one involved? I can't think of it. World but Bank. World yes, Bank. making it extremely difficult for them yeah. to, to just conduct humanitarian-style mm. programs. So – they're behind the eight ball. Um, I, I have to say, the you know the the common people get screwed over whichever way it goes. Um, yep. I mean, people don't want to leave a country if if they're. I have happy. personal friends who mm. are Venezuelans, mm. and they brought my attention to the plight of the poor Venezuelan people, and they mm. said the military there, uh, since it was taken over by. What was his name? The guy who died. The previous, Chavez. Chavez. Yeah. Mm. They said he was. T- he you know he came to power. Uh, you know, presenting himself as some sort of hero of the people, but he soon mm. ter- turned into a megalomaniac and mm. just just ripped off mm. the the country. You know, sort of you know raided the the treasury mm. and and in- installed friends and mates, and then they just became increasingly corrupt. Mm. And now, literally, tens of thousands of people are fleeing that country mm. into into the into Colombia and into other South American countries. And to their credit, the other. South American governments have relaxed, uh, you know, uh, visa requirements for, for, for basically economic refugees from Venezuela. Mm. And my two uh, good Venezuelan friends now reside in Chile. Mm. And, you know, for all its faults, and by no means do I condone right-wing military dictatorships, but Chile has sort of grown beyond that stage now and they've gone back to democracy and it's for all intents and purposes it may be a conservative uh you know uh, capitalist system but it's relatively prosperous now and it's peaceful and it's certainly a lot better than it was under either pinochet who knows what it may have become mm. under allende we we will never know mm. and maybe it would have been a good thing but you know mm. extreme mm. left or extreme right neither are good for the common people Anyway, I guess my point is that the fingers of the US government are all over failed governments mm. in Latin America and there's a real direct relationship between their activities and why there are people walking all the way to the US-Mexican border mm. seeking help. Mm. Yeah, you can't help but feel for those people, obviously. Mm. Right. Um, 
Just some recent news as well. Uh, Josh Frydenberg has come out and said a couple of things, and I don't have any notes on it here, but I'll just go by memory. In today's paper, he's come out talking about how, well, dear listener, let's describe capital gains. And Scott, help me out here. But essentially, when uh, investment properties are sold, you would think in a normal case that uh, you've got the buying price and the selling price, and after allowing for inflation, the, uh, the difference between the two is your income and would be added to your tax return upon sale. Yeah, that's the way it used to be done. That's the way it used to be done. But uh, Howard changed it and said, well, that income that you've made, we're going to halve it. We're going to give you a 50% discount. And and why? Well, at the time there was relatively high inflation. So kind of 50% wasn't that far off the effects of inflation to some extent. But it, it just made the calculations simpler. But it also, well, why? Because it's favourable to the rich, which was what Howard was you know, It was seeking. vote buying, wasn't it? Yeah. Vote so, buying. From so, the, so buying what, votes from the middle class, essentially. So, so what we've got, dear listener, is if you make money through buying and selling houses, you get a 50% discount on, on the income that you have to declare Whereas if you make money by digging holes and building fences or clearing toilets or no polishing discount. floors or flipping hamburgers, you don't get a 50% discount. The Labor government has come out and said if we're elected, instead of 50%, it's going to be 25%. Yeah, and, I, and Which I think and, they should just go back to the old way of doing it. And well, you know. Frydenberg has come out and said... Ah, oh, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah, you know, it's going to be one of the highest Your taxing is going to be um, cheaper schemes in the world. And the the point is, and mugs like me who might get a second job on the yeah, weekend. Yep, yeah, you don't get fifty percent. We don't get fifty percent discount on our extra income. No, there is don't. there is no good reason why somebody who earns money through sitting on capital appreciation should get a discount from somebody who gets you know, it through blood, sweat, and tears. Even when I was at university and I was first introduced to the whole it was called indexations, ladies and gentlemen, where you index your you index your purchase price. And it was done by the inflation numbers and you ended up paying only tax on the above the above inflationary gain. I thought to myself at the time, this doesn't make any sense because there's no inflation adjustment on your interest. There's no inflation adjustment on your dividends. That sort of thing. I thought to myself, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why there's any adjustment at all. I would have thought the fairest thing to do would be to have 100% of the profits in your taxable income. Wouldn't you think? If anything, you should be taxed more if you have received income because you've managed to sit on capital. I, I don't think so. I don't, but, but if anything, I don't think so. I understand where you're coming from, no, but I don't but think so. If you had to say one has to be taxed higher than the other, if there was just... If you if you had to say one had to be taxed higher than the other, then then if I would anything, agree with you. Yes, you would say that the the yeah. the money you get from sitting on something should be taxed at a higher rate. Yes, yeah. but we don't have that situation. This is just a you know argument, mm. an argument between friends. There is friends. A class war, and the rich are winning. Mm. Yeah, exactly. They are. I mean, you know, my friends are going to throw rocks at me if they hear this, but uh, mm. I think that we should abolish any adjustments on capital gains, I think 100% of it should go into your taxable income. Mm. 
Anyway, that's going to be a discussion point. So bear that in mind. And he's also called on the banks to uh, reignite affordable and timely lending because the banks have, well, they got hammered in a royal commission and um, over reckless lending, lending. Over yeah. reckless lending practices. So they pulled their heads in and stopped lending as easily as they were. And of course, that's means that there are less loans being made. It's nowhere near as easy as it was to get an investment loan in particular. And guess what? Housing prices are falling as a result because there's less buyers in the market. And it's not looking good for the federal government coming up to a May election because the um, the economy and GDP, I believe, that will affect the GDP, mm-hmm. that sort of... Um, uh, capital depreciation. So the capital depreciation goes into the GDP. Yeah. You know, when you sell something, you end up having that being divided amongst the whole country. It goes into the GDP. Yeah. So if you have housing prices retracting, that will be a negative on the GDP. If you have two quarters of negative growth in the GDP, you end up with a recession. Yep. So they're in a real risk of seeing a recession occur through simply, you know, lower house prices. Mm-hmm. So, they, which has probably come because the banks have retracted their lending. Yeah, and you know, how did we get a financial crisis in the first place? It was predatory because lending. of crazy lending in America. Mm. Why did we not have it in Australia so bad? Because our banks were well regulated. Mm. Because we'd had a little scare ten years earlier in with the Asian uh, economic crisis. Yeah, and with the with the sort of South Australian bank. Yeah, there was and, a South Australian bank that went belly up. I yeah. can't remember its name. Pyramid, was it? Yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And as a result of that, we had tightened our banking practices. Absolutely. Which meant that we were not exposed. Mm. And when the US, you know, went crazy with their lending, low doc loans, our banks were not doing the same thing. And no, it saved I mean, our bacon. And now Josh Frydenberg, our treasurer, is saying, Come on, banks at least in the purse strings, we need, yeah. we need more, more cavalier lending. <laughs> Josh Freinberg strikes me as um, not terribly well qualified for the job somehow. I mean, why did he end up as treasurer anyway? What were his qualifications? He was the last man standing. You know, mm. it's, uh, and that was it, wasn't it, it? Well, he was the deputy leader of the Liberal Party that traditionally gets to choose their position. But what's his training, do you know? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's law, isn't it? I don't know. Don't know. Don't know. But uh, anyway, he's got a very uh, libertarian, neoliberal, free market, low tax. He's very strong on that. Well, yeah, I mean, you you, you glean that from who he put on his office walls, like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, those sorts of things. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. He did put those portraits up on his wall. Very telling, isn't it? It is, yeah. 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 Dear listener, uh, you should be aware that on our website we've got the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index where we have looked at the secular credentials of our federal politicians and giving them a rating from zero through to ten as to how secular or non-secular they are. And after May we'll have to go and look at that again. We will. Mm. And uh, some people might think, oh, I don't know that that's a really good thing to be doing, but... Uh, it's been done in America by Pew Research Centre, no less, mm. one of the world's great research centres, and they've got a magnificent uh, 
a listing of the religious composition of the uh, current uh, Congress. So I've got a link to that, and uh, I think there's one person who does not show any affiliation with a religion in the entire Congress. Just one. Yeah. So they got the information through direct ringing up and question. They did questionnaires and they also did follow-up calls and things. And was, if you're listening, mate, that's what we're going to have to do at some stage after in the lead-up to this next election because, you know, here's what happens. We can ring up these people now and they just don't even answer. But in the lead-up to an election, they're happy, more happy to sort of answer queries about stuff. So Mm. as we find out who the candidates are, we need to ring them up and say, um, what's your religious affiliation? So Was and I will have to work on that. And anyone else who wants to join the team, let us know and we can divide it up. There was an article on the news today showing Mike Pence, uh, who had to officiate with the swearing-in of some new members of the US Congress. One Mm. of them was a a woman who is openly bisexual Mm. and she refused to swear with her hand on the Bible instead using the US Constitution as the Mm. document that she swore over. Mm. And, I mean, you know, they, they were implying that Mike Pence would have squirmed a little <laughs> considering how religious he is. I actually saw the videotape of it. Oh, did and you? And he was very friendly to her, yeah. very friendly and gentlemanly. And but actually squirmed inside, I imagine. Maybe, but yeah. honestly he was very gentlemanly in the whole thing and even advised her yeah. to move her shoulder out so that there'd be a better photograph mm. of her and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, and, and despite his re- religiosity, which is a worry, a genuine worry, he, he strikes me as a much more reasonable and um, uh, refined a, human being than, than uh, Trump, his yeah. boss. And you know, this like, is the whole point. I mean, there's a lot of people that are fearful of a Pence presidency. I'm not. What? No, I am God. fearful of a little bit, but nowhere near as bad as what we've I got am, now. But at least he's a he's a more rational human being exactly. in most oh. respects than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is just, you know, he he just makes it up as he goes along. Honestly, anyway, Elizabeth Warren's going to win next time, so it won't be a problem. That's not at all a certainty. <laughs> and look, I, I, I don't mind Elizabeth Warren, I have to say. I find her a lot more reasonable than most of the contenders. Look, she's a, she's a very well-educated woman. She has a, an economics background and she's not sunk on this whole right-wing nonsense of cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. No. She actually wants to return America to the 1950s where yes. you have a top marginal rate of 90 cents That's in the dollar right. and you have a – you have a well-educated, well-paid middle class and you have a link, a shrinking class divide, not a growing That's class right. divide. And a know? much healthier country in, Absolutely in every you respect. Do. Yeah. She's the one who was nicknamed Pocahontas. She was nicknamed by Pocahontas Donald by Donald Trump. Yes, yes. Because she claimed... She claimed American a percentage Indian. of Indian, of Native American, I apologise, Native American um, blood. Yes. And she went and had a DNA ancestry test done and it turns out there's a minuscule amount of, Andi- of Indian, Indian of Native American but blood you, in there. You gave yeah. us a link to something that suggested if you go back more than 10 generations, it's hard to really find a, a, a definite link with ancestors. Is that right? Correct. So if, you know... Ten generations is roughly when, 200 to 250 years. When, when they were um, – when this came out, people were thinking, okay, if one of your – you know, you get 50% of your 
DNA from your parents and therefore you must get a quarter from your grandparents and therefore you must get an eighth from your great-grandparents and and this sort of thing. And this article that I've got a link to says, no, it doesn't work out that way. It's more random. It doesn't get divided equally like that. And basically, if you pick one of your ancestors from 10 generations back, the odds are around 50% that you carry any DNA from him or her. Because the way it works, it's it's a random yes. assemblage of Indeed. DNA components Indeed. from your ancestors. Which is interesting when we talk about our issues with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters where we're considering giving special privileges, privileges based on racial differences and at what point, if you agree to that, at what point are you drawing the line? Because at some point in the future, you could well have somebody claiming, uh, you know, that 10 generations back they had Aboriginal yeah. ancestor. Yeah. And the chances will only be 50% that any of that DNA has, has made its way into their system. And that's part of the reason I have a problem with our Indigenous brothers and sisters claiming... Uh, you know, an unbroken line of descent going back 60,000 years. It's absurd. And, you know, you may recall when uh, some people of southern central New South Wales demanded and were given the remains of what was dubbed Mungo Man, which were Mm. the bones uh, of, of some person who was buried there something like 40,000 years ago. Now, they claimed ownership over these 40,000-year-old bones and they demanded that they be returned by whatever museum had uh, custody of them for research purposes and they were taken out and, re- and, and reinterred. Mm-hmm. I mean, 40,000 years. Now, there's no way they can claim direct lineage from people 40,000 years ago. It's just Mm. uh, so unlikely as to be ridiculous, isn't it? If they were claiming direct lineage, yes. Well, they Uh, did. They claimed these people were their ancestors. Yeah. How can they prove such a thing? Yeah. They can't prove it. I'm sympathetic to the return of... Really? Yeah. Of 40,000-year-old bones. That's like going back to Europe, digging up... uh, even if it okay, was okay, let's muddy the waters a little bit. Let's yeah. before we move on to human beings. But what about um, artifacts? In sense of, you know, uh, the British Museum has got all sorts of Egyptian artifacts, for no, example. I, I, uh, what, I, what, I what think, artifacts. Yeah, I what, think, what's your feeling on that? Okay, here's my feeling on this because I was in the Louvre, mm-hmm. in the Louvre, and there was the Venus de Milo there, and they were talking about where it was taken from, a Greek island. Now. Greece at the same time was cracking the shits at the British Museum over the marbles from the, the Parthenon. Parthenon. Yeah. yeah. The El- Elgin marbles. Exactly. Elgin marbles. Yeah. And I thought to myself, we have heard nothing about the Venus de Milo. When the Venus de Milo is on display in the Louvre in France, the Elgin marbles are on display in the mm. British Museum in London. There's been no... Actually, the French could, could there have been and you just didn't know? Well, I don't know, but I didn't hear anything. I don't know it. if you've heard of it, Scott, but the French government has recently repatriated a lot of um, sculptures, artefacts to a West African country. 
Really? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of artifacts that were taken, some would use the word looted, but they were certainly taken you know, <laughs> uh, back to France from yeah. this West African country. Which the was French a government, former, from a French Macron, colony. you know, for better or worse, he's decided that, yeah, it's only fair that they be returned. So they've been sent back. So, so what's your view? Should these artefacts be returned uh, to the country of origin? Look, it's, it's, it's a tricky one because my view is that um, particularly in the case of scientifically uh, valuable assets like um, bones, uh, that they should be committed to the advancement of science rather than used as um, tools of national egotistical pride. Yeah, but those bones yeah, but would what's have been your answer? Used, those... I don't have a clear answer, to be honest. Right. I, I think the Greeks have a legitimate claim to the mm-hmm. Elgin marbles. I really do because they were an essential part of the Parthenon, which is a historically highly significant uh, structure, and not only for the Greeks but for humanity at large. See, this is my whole my whole attitude is we should be advancing the interests of humanity rather than just the Greeks or the Australians or the Yanks or whoever. The thing I the problem I have with repatriating skeletal remains is that they have but, ex- but, but, high high scientific value. Uh, but okay, before we get back onto the skeletal remains, but just we're talking about you know the Rosetta Stone, for example. Hmm. I mean, should that it was be found returned? found in Egypt, wasn't it? Yeah. Or should it be repatriated? Yes. Maybe. But then we see what happens in uh, Syria during the, the So we're going to say well, you can't have it back because you're an uncivilised country that might lose it. You uncivilised is you, not the right word, but, but, but uh, you're a, politically unstable. Right. Well, we saw what happened with that incredibly significant archaeological site in Syria that was mm. at least partially demolished by Islamic State. Deliberately right. partially demolished, like what they did with the the Buddhas in yeah, uh, Western but, Afghanistan. Yeah, a bit like what the US did. With, stuff. A bit like what the US did with Baghdad. Yeah, and the, the US yeah. did with Baghdad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, the yeah, US did not it's, ransack it's, the museums. The, of Baghdad. I don't no, think no, that they well, were deliberately well, targeting well, the museums in well, Baghdad. Well, well, they create such chaos that it then opens the the. The, the security forces are decimated yeah. and therefore looters come in. That's Absolutely. Right. So they that, didn't do it themselves, but they basically created a situation and their soldiers just stood by and watched as, as it was looted. And people will so, argue that everybody was better off leaving Saddam Hussein and his cronies where they were, regardless of the fact that they dropped chemical weapons on Kurdish villages and towns, that... You know, Saddam Hussein and his his uh, his sons used to. I mean, his sons were notorious. They used to do things like allegedly, you know, that they'd be driving past a local wedding, and the sons would go into the wedding and 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 at gunpoint, you know, rape the the bride mm-hmm. in yeah, the middle of a yeah, wedding. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, atrocious people, and they yeah. deserve to be removed from power, obviously. Yeah. But yes, you know. But anyway, I think you could view almost an, a forty thousand year old. Aboriginal body skeleton as some artifact like that. It's not an artifact. It's a scientific, well, it's scientifically highly valuable piece of. To to me, it belongs to humanity. It doesn't belong to one local. I think it belongs to the twenty first century. It belongs to the land that it came from. It doesn't belong to the land. 
Trevor, really. It belongs to humanity. It's part of our patrimony. It's part of our humanity's patrimony. It doesn't belong to these local Indigenous people at all. I can't see that they have a valid claim. I'm not saying it belongs to the local Indigenous people, but, but I'm saying it belongs to, to the they land. Acted as, to the, they acted as if it was their grandfather, you yeah, know? Well, I'm, I'm not up for that, but I'm just saying it belongs to the land that it came from. All these artefacts. Sorry, no. Mm. Yes, well, you want everything returned good. to well, Australia, That's, that's do you? good. We've got a, uh, I think. I think wherever these things came from, they should be returned. Why? Because what's the legal claim for these muse- a British museum having these things? The, they were the, the, the British were the a, colonial. Did they buy them? No, they didn't buy them, but they were the colonial. Did they take uh, them? They were, yes, they they were the colonial them. owners at the time. They yeah. took their, they took their yeah. artefacts back to the British Museum. Yeah. See, these are one of the things we can reverse. Like when it comes to, you know, Australia's, uh, you know, colonisation of, of, you know, white man's colonisation of Australia, we can't reverse it. It's just no. done and dusted. There's no, there's no going back. There's no going back. So there's no fixing. But in something like this, you know, the Rosetta Stone should go back to wherever it came from because no government would have the right to sell it if it was bought and no government has the right to just take it as spoils of war. So it should be back where it came from. What about the argument that humanity as a whole benefits by dispersing these artefacts to museums around the world, well-run museums, yeah. Yeah. so well, that the well, no- ordinary well, citizens, particularly the well, children, well, Cairo museums, well-run, yeah, and and, look, and dispersing not, it out of you oh, know the I don't British have Museum. a problem with sending things back to Egypt, frankly, mm. because on the whole, the Egyptian government recognises that having these artefacts in their museums generates tourism income, which mm. is good for the Egyptian economy. Mm. Okay. But there is an argument that, you know, if we send everything back to the country it comes from, then we're all poorer as a result, that our children can't go to museums well, and see well, well, see things that excite their curiosity but, about but you the know what? world. It's then open for those museums to have travelling exhibitions, which is what they do. Yeah. So then they say, you know, um, Brisbane, you know, museum or whatever, mm. Here's some mummies and some other stuff. We'll send it as a travelling sort of thing. So it's not like it won't happen. No, no. But museums. Do you think the Rosetta Stone usually... would ever go on a travelling museum? Though? No, but so you want the Rosetta Stone to be locked up in Cairo? When you say locked up, well, locked up in Cairo on public display in the Egyptian museum. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. But you want everything yeah. sent back to its country of origin? Do you? I think I do. Yes. Really? Yeah. But I think but you, and you want stuff I, going well, the back country, to Syria. The country of origin can decide if it wants to lend it out or not. So we would go to the Australian Museum and you, all we would see no, would be Australian stuff. Do you, do you not think other countries would lend out stuff as a, as a travelling exhibition? They would, but those It happens of, all the time. Uh, yeah, but those sort of events are, are fleeting moments in the life of the museum. But it happens all the time. So and, and, and also they lend things either permanently or, or semi-permanently. So our school so, children would go to the museum, all they would see would be Australian stuff. Okay. No, no, you weren't listening to me. We you often, just, you we just often, said the opposite of what I've often, said. Yeah, I know they're travelling exhibitions, but they, they, they pass through but, and they're fleeting moments but, in the but life. But, but, but these, these things would pass through. But, I mean, we criticise the American In a 20-year period but even, for six to eight weeks but, and then it would be gone again. We criticise no, the but, Americans no, for but, their insular, but, hang on. you know, America is the whole world. You, can you imagine this? Can you imagine the the 
Cairo Museum says to the Australian Museum, we've got some mummies and some bits and pieces that are excessive to our needs. You've got some stuff that's excessive to your needs. Uh, how about over the next 10 years we just swap? I mean, it's there permanently. I mean, this goes on all the time because museums and um, art galleries have more stuff than they can display. They've yes. got a problem a in displaying more. stuff. Mm. So they're keen to get rid of things. In fact, most of so the stuff on, on exhibition, they're often uh, yeah. replicas rather and, than the real thing. it's the key items that they would want to have for themselves and good luck to them, I say. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's a good digression. No, I think the Rosetta Stone should... <laughs> If it's going to go back to Cairo Museum, as Trevor says, then, well, let's hope it would be looked after. Just keep it there, but don't move it around. Look, you don't want to happen to, you don't want to have happened, happened to some of these ancient wonders that were in the Brazilian museum that burnt to the ground. Exactly. You well, know, now in, that was a bloody tragedy. In the event of a nuclear war, it might be safer to well, be in one of these obscure countries. <laughs> you know, London's the first city that's going to be one of the first to be bombed. So, you know. If you're talking about risk. I would have uh, thought that they would probably put them underground before the bombs would actually fall, but, you know. You don't have time. You wouldn't have had time in the old days, but you might have time now. How many minutes warning do we get? <laughs> you, get about, you get about half an hour and yeah, that's You get about it. half an hour now, but you, no, that, no, that's no, on you a hair trigger. You don't have time to get the Rosetta, the Rosetta Stone underground <laughs> into a, into a yeah. nuclear safe. Well, Come on. You know, We're talking it, it's risk. It's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Mm. It is, yeah. We have digressed. We have, yeah. But look, how I mean, considering the the forty thousand year old Mungo Man remains, mm. how far back would we have to go in Europe to claim ancestry? We'd be going back to the Neanderthals. But, but, but I'm not claiming it because of ancestry. I'm, I'm claiming it because of its of its, its geographical origin. origin. That's uh, nothing to do with ancestry. It's okay. geographical origin. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. We apologise, Jim. Yeah, that wasn't on the agenda. All right. Uh, where are we? Oh, you know, last late last year we were talking about um, these companies not paying tax. So yeah. we've got some links to some articles. Uh, you know, Glencore was one that I highlighted. So there's an article from Andrew West where he he also – he reckons that they, they paid $1,000 just to get off the worst list because – not to be on the much, worst, you know, you've paid no tax for three years and if you just pay a thousand, it gets it gets Jesus. you off the list. So that was his theory. Yeah. But Yeah, I did read that and I thought to myself, no, I think there's something bigger than that. Um anyway, I think they were just having fun with us. They were just thumbing their noses at us. But exactly. uh, anyway, um a thousand dollars would be like, you know, a couple of lunches for the top executives. Indeed. It? Yeah. It was a good lunch for the CEO. Um, one of the issues is, you guys remember the Panama Papers? Yeah. So what you've got is uh, a law firm that uh, had these shell companies so that you would have a director who is literally uh, the cleaning lady uh, for a building in an obscure Panamanian sort of building who's dirt poor and and living in a dirt hut, but she's the director of thousands of companies. The beneficial owners, of course, um, nearly 100 of them being Australians, and uh, a lot was revealed in the Panama Papers about the actual ownership. And apparently there was a plan to, uh, to create a register 
to expose who was the beneficial owner of a shell company who might be Australian. And in 2016, the uh, Liberal government said, we're going to create such a register and nothing has happened since. So, what a surprise. What a surprise. Uh, Kelly O'Dwyer said it would improve transparency. This is back in April 2016. And The Guardian asked just recently and said, um, you know, what's happened with the register? And O'Dwyer's office referred them to the assistant treasurer, which then passed it on to the treasurer, which then passed them back to the assistant treasurer. So, <laughs> so nothing's happening there. Oh, and back to Glencore, there's a get-up petition about Glencore as well. I forget exactly what it said, but it was basically, we're not happy petition. You can sign that. And another one that was highlighted was IKEA. Um, so... Their gross profits keep increasing, but so do their opaque expenses, you know, sending money back to the homeland. So uh, IKEA is another one that, you know, have you ever bought anything from IKEA? Yeah, bought stuff from IKEA. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. I bought stuff that the first time human hands touched it was when I opened it, you know. Right. Yep. Actually, let's just do a quick check. I, I did have, dear listener, only the top um, – I think I had the top 200 in that list of companies and I looked up IKEA and it frustrated me because it wasn't there because they're not in the top 200. So I've expanded it. They're all there now. And let me just quickly um, see if I can bring this up. Ah, IKEA. They have paid tax but extremely minimal again. So bugger all compared to... How many executive lunches? Yeah. So of their total... Income, their taxable income compared to their total income is 3.7%, 4%, 6%. Well, actually, 6, 4, 3, it's getting, and 1. So, you know, according to IKEA, if if, if they reduced their prices by 2%, they wouldn't have made any money last year at all. Like, it's just. Well, according to this, you got $12.7 million loss for the 2018 financial year. Yeah. So, um, so there's another one. I think IKEA are doing pretty well in Australia, aren't they, generally? Yeah, absolutely. They seem to be. The, the, That's the, the whole point. They're not, I mean, they're the not doing well on the tax-paying front. Mm. Yeah. Oh, actually, one thing I will mention, dear listener, uh, we're talking about Patreon and some people around the world are unhappy with Patreon because mm. uh, they took some people off their list. One of the guys they took off was this Sargon of Akkad and... He said, he said some pretty nasty racist language, so I don't blame him. Anyway, if you don't want to use Patreon, then there's a link there where you can just do a PayPal thing and do a donation that way. So we'll keep both of them running, and it's up to you, whichever one you choose to use, if you wish to be a patron. And I should mention the patrons, and I'm going to have to edit this out while I bring them up. Hang on. 12th man, you'd like to make a plug. Go I'd like ahead. to make a plug for the Secular Party of Australia. are having an event in Melbourne in February, I think it's February 9th, Saturday, February 9th, from 1pm. Uh, it's called Losing Your Religion, Ex-Muslims Speak Out. So it's specifically a an event where some ex-Muslims will be talking about uh, their 
personal life journey of leaving the Islamic religion and perhaps you know their uh, experience as a result of of that hmm. because as we know for muslims it's a pretty big step to actually you know divorce themselves from their religious uh, group mm-hmm. uh so anyway if you're interested uh, probably the easiest way would be to have a look at the secular party facebook page all the information's there and you can buy tickets there there's actually an early bird rate currently on for a few more days so if you're interested it's at it's at Bayview on the Park is the name of the venue it's at 52 Queens Road Melbourne Victoria Australia Saturday 9th of February 2019 from 1 p.m. and there'll be a dinner later in the evening so if you're interested in attending that event I'm sure you'd be welcome hmm. you're going to go I'm definitely um wanting to go yeah I'm trying to find out if anybody else in this Fair city of ours is interested in right. going with me. Mm. Okay. be good to get a recording of it. Mm. Mm. Might talk to you later about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to the patrons uh, in uh, – that's a strange order, this one, but Tony Ayame, Gavin Rod, Matt J, Jimmy Spud, um, the beneficiary, Less Is More, Captain Doomsday, Peter Harry, Daniel – um, Squeaky Wheel, Dave, Liam, Dominic, Matic Man, Palais, Robbie, Bronwyn, Kane, Watley, Caitlin, Steve, Sean, Alex, Alison, Wayno, Landon Hardbottom, John, Craig, and Janelle. Thank you, patrons, for your um, support. You know, I, I sent a little message to the patrons about the whole Patreon sort of thing, and, and as part of it, I said, you know, we don't do anything special for you patrons. You know, are you looking for sort of paid extra content to be a patron? And I got of the messages I got back, people said, no, like we're just doing it because uh, we want you to keep it free for everybody to enjoy and we don't need any special content. And so there you go, dear listener. Thank you very Sign much. Sign up patrons. as a patron and join this marvellous group of people who expect nothing special in return <laughs> at all. No special deals. Sometimes you listen to a lot of podcasts and they say, oh, we've got all these special deals for patrons. But these people are actually just, out of the goodness of their hearts, providing a bit of money to help cover these expenses and uh, because it's the right thing to do. Good on you, patrons. Thank you very love, much, patrons. Love you for it and thank you for those who sent those um, comments. Um, here's another one. Scott, we'll get back to another topic you were going to talk about, but um, I've just come across this one on my list was Japan confirms it will quit the International Whaling Commission in order to resume commercial whaling. And one of our friends, Caitlin, it was on her Facebook page, she wasn't happy about this. And I'm just wondering, I mean, obviously if whales are endangered, any species that are endangered, we don't want them killed. But wouldn't whaling be just another form of fishing or not? I tend to agree with you, actually. I apologise, Caitlin. I do think that, um, you know, the Japanese have gone to an extent where they try and mask their whaling activities in the Southern Ocean as research. Until recently. Until recently. Which when was a farce. It was a farce. Everybody knows It, it was, was a farce. It was a fake. And they're going to pull out of that and they're going to do whaling in their own territorial waters now. Mm. Surely... As a species 
protection thing. We would be better off if they did their, if they continued their whaling in the Southern Ocean rather than the Northern Oceans around Japan. Because my understanding is that's where the real threatened whale species live is in the Northern Oceans rather than those in the Southern Oceans. Is that right or not? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And they will effectively fish out the last remaining whales in their territorial Absolutely waters. they will because they've already fished out their own waters for fishing. Mm. They've... So I'm reading from this article, it says, Suga, whoever that is, uh, oh, the government's chief spokesman, um, Yoshihide? Yoshi he's the Minister for Suga? Fisheries or something. Yeah. Um, he told reporters the country's fleet would confine its hunts to Japanese territorial waters and exclusive economic zone, adding that its controversial annual expeditions to the Southern Ocean, a major source of diplomatic friction, would end. So, See, my understanding was that Japan was taking 200 minke whales a year. Now, the minke whale population is, I don't know, it's very... It's much larger than 200 whales. It's not an endangered species. No, it's not an endangered species. In fact, the, the Japanese once described the minke whale as cockroaches of the ocean. Really? <laughs> which I think is, is a bit of hyperbole. But, yeah, right. um, Tasty cockroaches. Well, you know, whatever. I mean, like, it's we're not going to have humpbacks being slaughtered in Harvey Bay or anything like that, which what used, well, what used to happen. they wouldn't have done that anyway in Harvey mm. Bay, no, but they might have in the Pacific Ocean. They did used to hunt them in Harvey Bay. Mm. They did have a whaling station in Harvey mm. Bay, blah, 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 blah. That sort of thing's not going to happen again. And thankfully it's not going to happen in Australian waters because the Australian government is, is yeah. very much opposed to commercial whaling, which I agree with wholeheartedly. However... I have always thought that what you've got to do with this is you've got to have a controlled hunt which is set up by Greenpeace or somewhere else and they can say you can take two blue whales a year. You can take... Not well, blue whales. Okay, but, you know, what I mean... Blue whales are extremely in, endangered. Okay, well, then you don't, you don't include blue whales, but you say that you can take however many humpbacks a year. You can take however many minke whales a year. But you've got to have a controlled hunt that enables them to eat their whale meat, which for whatever reason they like to eat. and But you've got to have it controlled so that you do not have overfishing going on. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think they have a legitimate claim to say, we want to eat whale meat, you guys want to eat cow meat, pig meat, lamb, sheep meat, whatever. I mean, it, it's meat, regardless okay. of where it comes from. Okay, but... But can I just add mm. before you... Um, but me no buts. Yeah, look, Shakespeare. The, the Japanese government claims it's 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 a traditional food of the Japanese. This is a furphy. It was it, a traditional was, food for some very limited Japanese communities. It was mm. by no means enjoyed by the even the, even close to the majority of Japanese people. No, mm. no not not even close until the American occupation. That's right. Post World War Two, there was a shortage of accessible protein. And they they started uh, commercial whaling yeah. in a big way because they needed cheap protein. And before that, they didn't hunt whales so very much. Not only that, but the the companies that hunt the, that actually do the hunting of the whales now these are privately owned companies, and they have connections to the Japanese government, which which subsidise them with taxpayers' money, mm. and it's 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 a business. Mm. It's purely and simply a business and a few people are profiting from this 
at the expense of the Japanese population as a whole, who most of them never eat whale meat, okay, and the rest of them are paying through the nose for a few people to enjoy whale meat and for these companies to make a profit. Mm. So there you have it. Right. It's by no means a traditional custom for most Japanese. All right. So you're of the view, why not? Because it's just another for, for non-endangered species I'm, in Japanese waters you would say why not, why not? Yeah. okay but i'm more concerned about tuna, tuna stocks because the japanese love tuna okay all japanese virtually love tuna and okay. the tuna stocks of the world's oceans are going down in a big way okay here's here's the conundrum because we would say with the killing of uh, livestock, for example, it must be done in a humane way. Yes. And we've said that, you know, in the Islamic and Jewish tradition, they're not allowed to stun the animals and they've got to slit their throats and this causes, you know... Um, it's also uh, what happens to them before quite, they slit their throats. Yes, it's pretty awful. But, but pretty much we're after a humane yeah. uh, treatment of animals. Yes. If they're going to be slaughtered for human consumption, it should be done humanely. Yeah. Yep. And... Really, it's would I don't know, but it would seem to me uh, when when they when they kill a whale, is it fairly instantaneous with uh, with a explosive I don't sort of so. I device, they, or is I it think, a fairly long drawn out torturous I think it's a saga? somewhat long drawn out and painful death? Okay, yeah. so there is where I would say is a problem yeah. because if they were able to kill a whale as quickly as they could kill a cow. Um, they shoot them with an explosive harpoon. Now, where does it hit them in the body? Who knows? Yes. There's no way that they can just sneak up behind the whale, put uh, an explosive bolt to the back of the skull and knock them unconscious. It doesn't happen like that. No, they shoot them wherever it hits them. That's where it hits them. Yes. Uh, Presumably with things like tuna... Uh, it's not long. You you pretty much are dragging them out pretty quickly. You and, drag them yeah. out of the ocean and then you put them in a chiller box and then they freeze and they die. Yeah, yeah. it's not as bad as perhaps what a whale killing would be. So anyway, there's there's my issue with whales would be go for it if there's plenty of them and it's in your territorial waters and you can do it as quickly as you can kill a cow. That last part might be the hard part, I suspect. And it's not well, That's a good Japanese. point, Trevor. I hadn't considered that before. You've got to try and do it humanely. Mm. Now, I don't know how you're going to do that because the you're, you're, you're right. There, it is an explosive tipped harpoon they do use, but they probably aim at the back of Wherever the whale because that's the whale can get, that's where they can hit it and they bring it up and they mm. explode and that sort of stuff, but it doesn't kill the whale straight away. But it's not only the Japanese, I should add. A whole lot of countries are overfishing. And the Chinese apparently, I mean, that's a, that's a nation with a huge population and they also love to eat fish. And they are sending out fishing boats globally and uh, they are dredging the ocean of fish. And not only the Chinese, but a lot of countries are sending out these huge fishing fleets and literally mining the oceans of fish. And we are going to, in the not-too-distant future, have an ocean largely depleted of any kind of Life. A lot of our fish will be farmed fish. Well, that might be the sensible Mm. option. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. A couple of other topics. Um, Let me see here. Have you guys been keeping track of the yellow vests in 
France, a little bit. Yeah, I have been, and it's an interesting phenomenon. It is, it? yeah, because you know France is set up on liberty, egalité, fraternity. You know, liberty, equality, and long fraternity. live the revolution. Exactly. But then, when you read the some of the quotes coming from this article that Trevor has posted, you think she's a bloody hell. They've forgotten the mm. they've forgotten the principles of the revolution. Yes, you know. And we shouldn't forget the French Revolution was a seminal event in human history. Absolutely it was. You know, it, it broke down the nexus between church and government, blah, 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 blah. Right. I mean, I know it didn't result in a in a democracy straight away, but it no. did result in a democracy over time. Eventually, yeah. I think they're up to the Fifth Republic now, aren't they? I'm not sure. Yeah. Just quoting from this article, it says, Voltaire exaggerated when he quipped that insurrection was France's only invention. As, as did Carlyle in claiming that forming riotous mobs is the talent that distinguishes the French people from all peoples, <laughs> ancient and modern. They know how to do a riot, well, they a, a rebellious riot. It's a French thing. We yeah. were talking about uh, painless death, quick and painless death. They invented the guillotine, right. for goodness sake. Absolutely. Right. And the guillotine was the most humane way it of executing a person. more humane than, than hanging, hanging or yeah, exactly. inter, you know, execution by uh, injection. Well, you know, it was absolutely ridiculous. I remember, uh, I can't remember the guy that was executed in the US, but he was electrocuted. And this guy took hours to die. And the French were beheading a guy over there in Paris and the Americans were saying this is barbaric and that sort of stuff. And they said, really? How long did it take so-and-so to die? (laughs) Anyway. Well, anyway, these yellow vests, they seem to be not connected with any political group. It seems to be an uprising of the poor working-class Frenchman who has just said, we've had enough. Enough, yeah. And we're finding it tough. And the French elite have been saying, you dumb, yokel, racist hicks, yeah. basically. Yeah. Our very sort of class-driven uh, sort of rebellion mm-hmm. and the response has been from the elite sort of – it's really the the French uprising seems to be the American equivalent of the – Rust Belt, or the equivalent of the American Rust Belt, which which rose up and supported Donald Trump yeah. and said, we're not getting anything from anybody here and we're going to just complain. Yeah, I, the- I would simply add that I, I personally don't support people rioting in the streets and burning cars and smashing businesses and, mm-hmm. you know, wreaking havoc. But you can, you can see where they're coming from. That mm. they they feel that their sometimes their voice is not being heard. Yeah, and sometimes I think when their voices aren't being heard, I'm not supportive of them going that. But I can fully understand why they go that way. And I do think that if Australia continues down the road that is going on now, we are going to see riots in the street. Do you think? Really? Absolutely, it'll be. It'll no, probably. I think be, Australians are too apathetic. Oh, for I don't know. You know, you you can see that, you know, you you already see like, you know, there was a podcast I was listening to the other day and they said that in 1980 the BHP CEO was on 20 times average weekly earnings. Now he's on 200 times average weekly earnings. When numbers like that filter down and that type of thing, people are going to get pissed off. No, they won't. Not until they're hungry. Sorry? Not until they're hungry. Yeah, I know, but that's Mm. not very far away before full hunger comes in. Well, we need a severe... Yeah, I can't see it Economic uh, shock before Australians will do anything. Yeah. We've had 29 years of uninterrupted growth. Yeah. 
in terms of GDP, not yeah. in terms of wages. Yeah, I agree. The wages and that sort of thing. I mean, I was talking to my better half the other day. I'm the sorry, lesser the half. lesser half, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> I was talking to my better half the other day. The lesser half. And I, I, we were debating about who we should vote for in the next federal election. Yes, this is the insight into my relationship, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. But um, <laughs> because I have reluctantly decided to vote for the Labor Party at the next federal election. Right. And the reason why I'm reluctant to do so is because the unions are in Bill Shorten's – no, Bill Shorten is in the union movement's back pocket. And the problem there is that you're going to see the move away from enterprise bargaining to industry bargaining. And industry bargaining was last un, unbridled and that sort of stuff in this country in the 70s when the beer, when the breweries would go on strike every summer, the pr- planes would refuse to fly every summer and then every, elect- and every winter the electricity would turn out. So that's why yeah. you're voting for the Labor Party? Well, I don't think I've got any choice but to vote for them. And my better half said, and he actually gave me something to think about here, he said, but... That will be good for us all because there'll be some runaway inflation, which will then help us correct our debt bomb. Sorry, I was daydreaming. Just yeah, start you were just from because I was—I I wasn't daydreaming. Well, do you want to delete I, this? I, 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 was, I was quickly. <laughs> I was surreptitiously scrolling through my list here of topics, yeah. so I missed the lead up to that. Give okay. it to me again. Just, all right, we'll start again. Yeah, okay, yeah. he said that if you've got this industrial. So he wants to. He's saying that the the union movement wants to move away from enterprise bargaining to industry bargaining. So therefore, you'll end up with all the brewers will be bargaining with their employers at the same time. So then you could have whole industries closed down through strikes. Now, the last time that happened was in the seventies when the brewers went out on strike every summer. The planes refused to fly every summer. And then every, every summer. Well. I don't know. Air traffic control was There was a big air. That was, was in bi- the 1980s. Yeah, there was a big strike in the 1980s when they were refused to, when there was, a, when there was an argument that they wanted to and step Bob outside Bob the Accord. airline pilots to, to bus, bus drivers. drivers. Yes, I agree. Now, there was, you've got airline traffic, you've got air traffic controllers can strike, blah, 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 blah. So, so the lesser half is saying if you vote Labor, <laughs> the, uh, the union groups are going to strike. Yes, yep. but he's in support of that because he said what's that's going to lead to is going to lead to greater wages growth, wages right? Growth, yep. which will then trigger off some inflationary movement in the economy, which will then result in higher housing prices, but debt will remain le- relatively level. Well, well, hang on. Just higher wages doesn't necessarily mean, okay, house prices are going to increase because house prices have been in a bubble for a long time yeah. and, you know, there's lots of – Things like interest rates yeah, that there's, have there's, a much bigger effect than than a two dollar an hour price rise for for a Cooper's Brewery, you know, worker. Yeah, like, but you've got to admit that the supply jump. and demand and that sort of thing will, is what really does keep the housing prices elevated. Is there's a demand for those housing, so. With a, with an increase in wages, that will then keep the elevated demand for housing. It, it, if if the Labor Party's elected mm. and the 50% capital gains tax concession is dropped is back dropped. to 25. And if the uh, negative gearing ability is grandfathered, mm. then you can have a 20% wage rise and house prices are not going to increase. So, mm, yeah, that's true. So that all, okay, but then and if, it, if you then look at if you just got to stabilise in the housing prices but you've got an increase in your wages, then you're mm. going to find debt affordability a hell of a lot easier, aren't you? 
you are, but the pricing is there's so many impacts on house prices beyond just wages mm. and bigger things that are in the works. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say... Net like, migration I, is a big factor I, too, I couldn't say, oh, you, the lesser half's argument is, yeah, bring in labour because of a, a domino effect is going to lead to increased housing prices. Okay. I Increase think that's a stretch, lesser half. Probably a stretch, but you've got to have you've got to and, maintain and, the housing and, crisis, uh, housing prices, and that will lead to inflation, which will then lead to what? You want which to- will then lead to which will then lead to increases in which will then lead to increases in wages and blah 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 blah. Now, right. okay. that, the problem that I have with that is that you've got to restrict the wages increase at the top end while you allow the bottom end to really grow really grow faster. Yeah. Anyway. Well, okay. Well, union. Striking for higher wages doesn't normally include management on. No, it doesn't include management, management, yeah. and that sort of stuff. That's where the that's where the um that's where the uh, shareholders are going to have to get tougher on the boards. So when they come before saying we want to give our CEO a ten percent okay. increase, you got to say Any, no, you can give two. Anyway, if the lesser half wants to vote <laughs> Labor because he thinks it will ultimately end in higher house prices, which will end in inflation, which will then end up in higher wages. Fine. If that's his reason, <laughs> fine, lesser half. All right. I oh, I'd, okay. How much uh, of that are you going to have to edit out? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, remember Masterpiece Bakery? Yeah. The one in How the could US? We forget? Yes, which refused to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. What have they done now? Well, um, they, they've refused to bake a cake celebrating a gender transition. So... Transgender lawyer Autumn Scardina called the bakery and requested a cake that was blue on the outside and pink on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> and they refused to make the cake after she revealed it was to celebrate her transition from male to female. So, this is provocation. So, uh, well, she probably was provoking them, but you but, know, yeah, clearly, clearly, they were expecting the bakery to say no. Clearly so they, they got were. a. They got a transgender lawyer to to get the evidence ready for a case. So it'll all be on again with the Masterpiece Bakery because it wasn't resolved the first time round because no. it was basically resolved on a technicality. So, uh, And so, we'll see how we go with the new judges and that sort of stuff on the US Supreme indeed. Court. So we'll see that. Um, other thing, Sky News, is got that has got me worried. That group has got me worried because... Sky News or Sky After Dark? Sky After Dark. Well, into Sky News, I don't trust them at all. Sky Sky Daytime will be as bad as Sky After Dark soon enough. We'll have to wait and see. Of course they will. I don't know. But um, they're finding themselves in public areas. So, you know, I was on a plane from Sydney to Brisbane and, you know, screens pop down and what's the show that's on... The screens is the default selection, but Sky News. Screens yeah. pop down. So, yeah. The, the, the head vice emerged. <laughs> that, that's right. From the headrest of the seat. <laughs> Clamped your head that's right. into position. <laughs> My eyelids were propped your open. Your eyelids were propped fixed. open. Your ears were unplugged. And I was indoctrinated. <laughs> yes, indeed. But the point, this is, but, but you go into a train station and, you know, there will be Sky News on. You go into the uh, airport terminals. There will be yeah. Sky News. Like these guys have the power to get themselves into these sorts of facilities. Yeah. And even though 
nobody goes home and sits down and watches Sky News. They 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 get themselves in positions like this. Sky Watch News. out, Sky News and is just aiming up to be the Fox News of Australia. Yeah, and Sky News has already been moved out into the regions and that sort of stuff via mm. free to air. Yeah. And you know, Sky News during the day is fine, even though Trevor objects to it, it's fine because you've got a very serious political journalist whose name escapes me, the Robert is it Spears? David Spears. He's a very serious journalist and he puts some very good stuff together. But after dark you've got Credlam. <laughs> you know, she's a lunatic. And then you've got uh, that Paul Murray, he's a lunatic. And you've got, um, then they roll out Alan Jones. You know, now he. And you've got Rowan Dean, whatever his name is, as oh, well. Should I have said that about Alan Jones? Or was that, um, was that. What did you say he was? A l- it's sort of poetic license. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a worry. Anyway, hey, uh, before the break, we also. We spoke or we didn't speak about a case down south where somebody cannot be named because of a court order. Did you know that there's another case? Um, apparently, an Indigenous leader who repeatedly attacked a woman, including choking her until she played dead, pushed her head in the mud, has been jailed for trying to strangle her. But that person, self-identity, has been... Um, blocked from being reported on the basis of it would identify the victim who didn't want to be identified. And it's interesting. Uh, Should the privacy of the victim outweigh the public interest of publicising criminals? Like apparently a well-known Indigenous leader is in jail for doing a pretty ugly thing and we don't know anything about it. And who knows, that person might be out in two years' time and back in the public eye and, and doing all sorts of advocacy, yeah. and we would want to know that that person. It's a tricky one. Mm. Should, the way, should the privacy of the victim outweigh the public interest? I think you... In the case of minors, we would probably say yes, but in the case of adults, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Hmm. I think that you've got to ask the victim first whether or not they want their name. Well, that's what's happened here, really. really. Yeah. So every so. victim has a legal right I didn't to know that, but it seems to be in this deny case. Deny public access to this sort of information. It's a hard one, isn't it? Well, see, mm. this is because Trevor's right. I mean, this guy could be out in two years. Mm. And if he's out again, I think that's something you do want to know. If someone's going to continue, if, if someone's going to continue to advocate on a public policy issue, then I think mm. you ought to know what they've been up to. Mm. Tricky. It is very tricky. Yeah. Uh, many moons ago, I did a book review on Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which I found fascinating. It frustrated me that one because I had real audio problems and the audio quality wasn't great. Because otherwise, it would have been one of my favourite episodes. Anyway. Turns out a number of the studies that Kahneman relied on have have not been able to be replicated. So a lot of the priming studies, and it seems this is a big problem in psychology experiments and behavioural experiments where they were actually using very few numbers and, uh, yeah. So if you're a big fan of thinking fast and slow and in particular the priming sort of 
um, results from that. Uh, a lot of research in that area. Can you give us a synopsis of his um, thesis? Uh, priming was the sort of thing where you would say to people, uh, do you think the world's tallest uh, eucalypt tree is um, taller or shorter than 100 metres? And then you'd be asked, okay, how tall do you think the world's tallest eucalypt tree is? And you would give an answer. And if I said to another group, uh, do you think the world's tallest eucalypt tree is taller or shorter than 500 metres? And then I ask you, how tall do you think it is? People who are given the first one invariably in their second answer give a lower figure than the people in the second group. You've been primed to... To by, by the first question, it's suggestibility and yes, numbers. yeah. So it was sort of things like that that um, were part of, and, and also if you've been exposed to words that connoted old age and sickness, as opposed to words that connoted um, um, vibrancy and and vigor. And then you were asked to move to a different room for another test. As you walked down the hallway, they measured the speed that you walked and the people who had been exposed to the old age talk walked slower than the people who had been exposed to the, to the vigorous <laughs> words. So that was another type of priming. So there were a whole bunch of experiments mm. that talked about how people respond to different yeah. verbal or other stimuli. So it has if, relevance so, to politics, obviously, because if but, Donald Trump gets up and says all all those Mexicans are rapists and murderers, yeah, most reasonable people would say, well, no, they're not all, but there might be some rapists and murderers among them, and we want to keep them out, type of thing. Yeah. So, so that's. But anyway, a lot of the sort of reports that Kahneman relied on turned out to be. Dodgy because they subsequent people have tried to do the same experiments and upon replicating them did not get the same results. Social psychology is fascinating, isn't it? Mm. And did you see that that one about the gorilla on the basketball court? Have you ever seen that experiment? Is that one not replicated as well, or it is? I I don't know, but I I was surprised myself because I I clicked on the link, which I came across recently on the Mm. internet. And it asks you, it gives you a, a group of people in, you know, white T-shirts and black T-shirts and they're playing and they're throwing basketballs to each other and you yeah. have to count, you're told to count the number of passes. Yes. So you count them and then they replay the video yeah. and they show you what you didn't see. Yes. And there's a guy in a gorilla suit walking through the group and, yeah. you know, yeah. very ostentatiously showing himself in the gorilla suit. Yes. I totally didn't see the guy in the gorilla yeah. suit the first time because I was focused on counting the number of passes of the basketball. Mm. So it's, it's a fascinating field, isn't it? Mm, it is, yep. Right, well, we've got a bunch of topics, but uh, I think we've been going nearly an hour and a half. We'll probably... <laughs> Good thing Mrs. Fist isn't here. Yeah, Mrs. Fist, <laughs> Mrs. Fist is not here. So uh, we've had a free reign. So, gentlemen, I think we should probably uh, call this one a day. And, dear listener, at some stage I'm keen to um, have a program where people ring up and talk to us. So 
would you like to talk to us about a topic? Have you got something in mind that you'd like to – because we replayed during the break a couple of our conversations with mm, some of our listeners. They were good fun. They were fun for us to do. I listened yeah. to them on the drive back from Sydney. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Actually, it was good having some of the highlights because I was listening to one of the other ones, which was just a grab bag of our previous things, and – and I was listening to stuff that I was saying. I was going, oh, that's interesting. I never knew that. Like I'd forgotten about, you know, some of the, I was like, oh, that's right. I forgot we talked about that. And uh, a little bit of re- repetition isn't a bad thing to get some of these it ideas. Was, it was really good, head. actually, to mm. have a reminder thing blasted through to us. Mm. So anyway, dear listener, if you'd like to talk to us, then um, get in contact and we can either do it via Skype or a phone call and it would be fun to do some more of that throughout the year so Mm. until next time bye for now thank you very much for tuning in bye now bye everyone well dear listener did you enjoy that episode of the podcast if you did i've got a favor to ask Uh, first up tell some friends let them know about the podcast you'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something i've said and When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe (laughs) on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.